All right, welcome into another episode of the Greatest People You've Never Met podcast. Joining me today as a special guest, really excited to get him on, Mr. Chris Graham. Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your life to be with me. Absolutely, Bennett. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. It'll be fun. Yes, it will be. Um, So quick, uh, I guess I like to do intros sometimes, but I'll give a quick one. I uh, happen to be watching a couple of top-notch documentaries and I saw Mr. Graham pop up a couple times and I said you know what I'm just gonna find this guy and reached out to him via LinkedIn and and here we are so um, I guess that's kind of how I found you but if you wanted to give a quick intro on on who you are to everybody what would that look like for you? Yeah no I appreciate it Um, and and yeah I'm I'm pretty easy to find uh, these days uh, on LinkedIn and otherwise thanks to thanks to a couple of these documentaries and some other stuff. But uh, the reason I'm, I'm sure the listeners are wondering why, you know, why would I even be on uh, documentaries and, and both of them uh, that are out so far uh, have to do with uh, things I did and, and cases I worked on in the FBI for, for 26 some odd years uh, uh, up until up until five, six years ago. So, yeah, yeah good stuff. Absolutely. So if um... I mean, I, I appreciate you sending me your resources, your your kind of story, right, on, on gmanresources.com. Uh, it really it, it's, such, it's such a good insight to who you are and all of that. And I guess I just kind of want to get into that story, and then we'll just go on from there. So you were working as an accountant, right? And then literally one day somebody robbed a bank close, and, you know, it says yeah. the bandit was the – so I guess just touch a little bit on that and how that really yeah. drove you to want to get into the FBI. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's actually a lead up to how, how I wound up even there in the first place. But thank, by the way, thanks for reading that, that, that story. I'm not sure uh, I started writing it and it just went on and on and on. And I'm not sure anybody ever got to the end because it, it just kind of rambles, but no, I, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. So cool. Well, good. Yeah. So just, you know, a little bit of background. Um, and, and for the listeners, this is, this is a history lesson for some and others that are, that are my age will remember this, but, um, you know, I, I, I graduated high school in 1980 and, uh, was confronted with, uh, what to do and where to go for college. Well, if you remember that era, it was, it was economically a pretty bad time for the country. Um, inflation was rampant. Um, it was just it was just a downtime. I mean, it was five, six years after Vietnam, uh, Carter presidency. Think things were not looking up. I, I so I went to college and uh, within a year or so figured out that uh, I needed to get a degree of some sort that would get me a job because I, I wasn't I wasn't really crazy about even being in college in the first place uh, and more or less and then getting out and not not really finding anything. So. I switched over to to accounting. Uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, it's pretty relatively easy. And 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 the one thing people have to remember is accounting in college is a lot different than accounting in the real world. And I'll, I'll come back to why why that matters in a minute. I, in college, it, everything there's always an answer, right? The the balance sheet the balance sheet balances debits equal credits and if, if you if you if you had that that line of thinking you would do pretty good so i s- switched over to accounting did pretty well got out and then uh went to work for at the time one of the big eight accounting firms um and i i will say this and then I've, I've told people this before by lunch on the first day at that job uh i knew that i had made a huge mistake and uh was was really not not where I wanted to be. Certainly not as a twenty-two um, uh, year old, probably kind of type A, little maybe maybe immature. Yeah, I, that's that's a good way to put it. Immature young person. Yeah. The the idea of being in a state accounting firm was uh, was pretty was pretty dim. Um, as crazy as it sounds, I stuck around in in that side of in accounting for geez probably four years, four or five years. And uh, as as you alluded to, in the uh, in this in the the the, the my story thing, um, <laughs> one day we were we were working at a client's um, 
uh, office doing an audit, uh, miserably boring. Uh, all all four of us kind of kind of crunched into a, a small conference room with with paper everywhere and and receipts and ten keys and and whatnot. And there was this commotion, and evidently somebody had robbed a bank nearby. Uh, and this is in North Baltimore and Towson area, robbed a bank nearby and took off running and somehow managed to run through this company's uh, headquarters and ran outside where he was grabbed by these these two guys in a suit, in suits, um, driving an old Chevy Caprice, and they had him up against the car. I mean, everybody's looking out the window and everything. Wow, that's cool as shit. Yeah. Who, who are these people? Somebody said, well, that's the FBI. Truth be told, it was probably not the FBI. I don't think it was. I'm sure it was Baltimore County detectives or something like that. Sure. But the seed was kind of planted then. And uh, I set off on on, on the long, arduous journey of, of trying to get into the FBI. Now, now, frankly, I was having that accounting degree, which I hated, um, you know, hated doing the work. That was how I got in. Um, probably would not have been able to uh, fall into a, a special special class, um, get in a little easier, probably, probably a little lower IQ score. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but but it, it got me in. Uh, so it, it it paid paid those dividends. Yeah, um, I I think it's. I I thought that was it was so interesting to to hear you say that and then read that and then you said like the maybe the mission standards were were a little easier at that time because like you touched on all the financial things in the world and they were looking for accountants or lawyer whatever right people with financial backgrounds to kind of come in was the FBI though ever on your radar growing up or law enforcement at all until that time no no in fact and and where i grew up um i grew up in in an area of Maryland where the, um, the, the town, I, I call it the town factory <laughs> where almost everybody's father worked yeah. was this place, this place in Fort Meade that had three letters um, that everybody now knows as NSA. Uh, but at the time it was, as I said, Oh, it was the defense department. Um, when you saw that it, it, you know, as a young person with different aspirations, you didn't want to, I didn't want to go that path. I mean, in fact, I, I, you know, my plan was go to college, get, you know, get, get some sort of business degree, accounting degree and go out and work on wall street make a lot of money, drive a cool car and, yeah. and all that. So it was, it was definitely not on my radar screen. I, I knew of a few folks who were in the neighborhood who were, were FBI, but didn't really have, have that kind of, that kind of influence. Um, that was, uh, more, 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 more the, the 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 episode with the bank robber combined with I just shit I just needed to do something different um, that was that was going to get me out of an office and and frankly get me get me give me a reason to move to another part of the country and 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 kind of kind of have some fun actually that was it I mean I, I frankly I I um, I was looking for something that was going to be fun and and it wow it really it exceeded my expectations in a lot of ways. I mean, I was, I was pretty, I think I had a pretty good idea of what I was getting into. I was not expecting much. I thought it'd be, uh, it's going to be kind of, you know, boring financial investigations and it turned out to be anything, but. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we'll get to some of that. I think it's just so, so wild, uh, you know, someone I'm very close with, uh, Jeff Heinrich, I do another pod with him, and he he was actually in the military. He had a college degree before he joined, and he tried to get into the FBI. That was his kind of thing, and actually the ATF eventually reached out and wanted him, but at that time, you know, he had a small child, and it just didn't seem right. So at that time, for you, were you a single guy? I mean, I think, like, if you just think of, like, a normal person, I guess, who hasn't been in it or around it, what the FBI entails, like you have to imagine like this is a huge change to life. So what did life outside of work look like at that time for you? Yeah, (laughs) that's a whole nother side story. Yeah. I I was actually um, engaged at the time. 
um, and had a wedding scheduled. Um, <laughs> my, and my, my wife hates this story. She, she hates it. And, and, um, but, but it's, it's the truth. Um, had a wedding scheduled for September ish, uh, September, 1989. Um, and after about a year, year and a half of waiting and fits and starts, I got my appointment letter to report to Quantico in August. And when you get to Quantico, at, at least at the time, you had about eight weeks that you had to, you couldn't, you couldn't sleep elsewhere. In fact, I think for the first four weeks, you couldn't even really leave the academy. Next four weeks, you could leave, but you had to be back by by sundown or or sometime like that. So I ended up, um, we had a, a decision to make. Um, and fortunately, she stuck stuck with me. <laughs> and and <laughs> we had a we had a hell of a wedding. And uh I, they, I think they gave me a one night pass. That was, that was, they, they bent some rules significantly to let me, let me stay out like that Saturday night. But that Sunday after the wedding, I, I drove back, drove back to Quantico. And uh, she says, she tells the story. She moved back into at the time, moved back into a parent's house and was in her, her teenage bedroom laying at the staring at the ceiling thinking, Holy shit. I, I, is this, I just got married and I'm, I'm back in my, my teenage bedroom yeah. uh, bed. Uh, so uh, she she put up with a lot of shit. And uh, a couple months later, we we packed up in a in a small car, and uh, with with what little we had and a cat, and drove drove halfway across the country to San Antonio, Texas. Yeah, which I mean, great story about your wedding and her having to move back into her parents. That that's hilarious to me. I can understand <laughs> why she probably doesn't love it so yeah. much, but. Uh, that was honestly when I was reading your story, the most interesting thing to me because right now there's all kinds of documentaries and movies out about Waco, right? And then mm -hmm. for you to actually have been involved in all of that, um, I mean, yeah. what was I mean, were you aware of it before? you had to go up like was it anything on your radar or was it like hey we gotta we gotta move up there and and how long were you actually there were you there yeah. for the whole 50 days outside of the first one i i, I sure was and and the, that that's about a three-hour podcast to tell the, the sure. Waco story yeah but, but i'll, I'll kind of yeah so just by way of background for the listener so waco as you know is is almost northern texas sort of central north texas and, and the question is why, if you're in San Antonio, why, uh, why would Waco um, be be part of your your region? As it turns out, Waco was our northernmost office. Uh, we had they would have these sub offices. They called them RAs. Waco was a small RA. I was, um, and, and I again, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was uh, uh, February twenty eighth, uh, nineteen ninety three. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, and I was actually at a uh, uh, an, an informant's house debriefing him on on a fraud case. And we're sitting there and on comes the TV, uh, immediate bulletin report. We interrupt this uh, Sunday morning show, probably about 11 o'clock. And they've got, they cut to the film of, which everybody's seen time and time again, the ATF agents up on the roof basically getting the shit kicked out of them in this, yeah. this gunfight. And the one guy rolls off the roof and slides down the, the, um, the ladder. Um, as that's happening, my pager, which we had at the time, it was high tech stuff. My pager starts going off, meet on I-35, head north, uh, plan for two or three days, pack for two or three days. I was, I was on the SWAT team at the time. It was just something kind of an extracurricular activity thing you would do if you um, if you had that inclination. And you again, like I said, I got in the FBI to have some fun and being on the SWAT team was if you could, you know, if you could shoot well and run fast and and didn't mind didn't mind getting called out on weekends or even on a Sunday morning. So so we headed up there um, and the 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 first couple of nights were um, just just bizarre, almost surreal. I mean, there, there was, it was tragic. There had been ATF agents had been killed. Number of Davidians had been killed. Um, there was this, this tension, this standoff, um, long story short, um, was there the, the entire time. Um, 
all 58 some odd days till the, the, the horrible fire on April 19th. Um, one of the reasons was it was our, it was San Antonio's territory. So there was a commitment that we, we had to, to stay there along with some of the, the, the elements from the hostage rescue team up in, up in, up in Quantico. Um, the, I, I've described it, I described sort of the first couple of weeks that were tense. You're up all night waiting for the, the next uh, uh, shootout or whatever was going to happen. Um, by the end of it, the weather had changed. Um, it had almost had a, uh, and, and I don't want to take this the wrong way, almost almost a spring breaky kind of feel amongst us because we would, we would, we would get up go out to the, the staging area by the compound where we would just kind of hang out all day, um, tell jokes, play cards, wait. That's what we say. SWAT stands for sit, wait, and talk. And, and that's kind of, that's kind of how it was until uh, as we know, uh, kind of a bad ending there. Yeah, no, it, it just was, I mean, to read, to read your story and then to see that you were a part of that too, which is, you know, such a significant piece of, truly American history. And then, you know, to see it kind of all come to fruition again with all these different documentaries and shows, like it's just kind of popping up again out of nowhere, you know? So it was interesting. Yeah, and, I, and I haven't watched any of them, uh, to be honest with you. I, I just, I, 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 maybe, maybe I will at some point. I, I kind of, uh, if, if they were ever to do one that um, maybe told a little more of what it was like on the ground for us, I, I should I be happy to participate and uh, yeah, but but yeah, I've, I've I've kind of steered away from it. Yeah, and I, 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 I I'm sure that's yeah, we, something, just, we just had the anniversary, right? And I'm sure that's something that you live through. You don't really need to watch the highlights of again. You know, every time there's a new documentary, so I don't blame you for not. I just I just thought that was so interesting that you happened to be in that situation as well and. What a far cry from your accounting job to to be in that Waco, right? In the course of what five six years? I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I remember vividly at one point because we would fly these helicopters around, and you would you would kind of sit on sit on the skids on the not sit on the skids. You'd sit on the the uh, the, the open door with your feet kind of hanging out, a la a la Vietnam. You know, it was like Apocalypse Now kind of kind of thing. And and flying around, and you have a a rifle with you, and I remember thinking, like, holy shit, did, did, this really has taken a turn yeah. a lot different than 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 I thought. And uh, we we know now how it ended, right? Um, but like a lot of times, like wars, and we look back, okay, well, we know we won that war, and we or we know how it ended. We we didn't know, you know, you didn't know how this was going to end, or, or am I going to end up in a in a, in a bloody gunfight with these folks again, uh, who knows? Right. So what, what's it like, I guess, after that, you know, like most people in a normal setting, right? Like they'll work their 40 hours and go home and get a weekend off. Or sometimes, you know, like I know guys that worked in like the oil fields, like it's 12 days on 12 days off. What's that like in the life of an FBI agent when you work 60 straight days on assignment? I mean, you get to go home and like, really, I mean, not more, I mean, unpack mentally probably more than anything, but what is that time like after something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think they gave us some days off, um, a couple days off. Um, I, I, you know, now it may be different now. I, I can honestly say that, um, in, in those years with the people I worked with, um, Nobody was nobody was counting hours or or assuming that they needed they were entitled to days off or anything right. like that. And and it was particularly that kind of thing. I mean, that was just such a such an event. And most people just really just wanted to get back get back to their cases, get back to the office, get back to uh, to, to normal life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure I I can understand that too. And I and I, I know that it takes special people to do what you guys did and. You know, it's it's obviously something that you have to love, right? To keep wanting to go with it and, and do it. So I'm sure getting back to getting back to normal routine was probably the best thing for you. So after after Waco, how long were you still in Texas after that? Yeah. So um yeah, I, I was there. When did I move? I moved to DC 
around 1998. So about seven years okay. uh, off and on. Worked, uh, really had a good time. Worked primarily white collar crime cases. Um, had, um, I, I just, I, I look back on that time uh, fondly because of the people I worked with. And then many of them, I'm, this is 30 years later, still friends with them. I mean, I, we can right. get on the phone and, and, and talk. And, and the reason I say that, and I, I describe it this way, it, everybody in their life has, they have a group of friends they're friends with for life. And it might be people they went to elementary school with or high school with, or sometimes it's college friends, maybe it's work friends. Um, I have that, but I also have the FBI group of people who came into San Antonio in that early nineties period. Um, we were all, we're all new. Most of us were newly married or young. If they had kids, they were little kids. Um, we did everything together. Um, there was this, this, you look out for each other camaraderie. Um, if somebody needed somebody, somebody was moving and they were moving into a new house and the house needed to be painted. That's what we did. Everybody would come on a Saturday or Sunday and work and paint the guy's house. Sure. Just that you did. You didn't hire painters. The other example of that, and I, it, I just remembered it. Um, so when, when my son was born, there was, uh, uh, I guess some complications, my wife, everything turned out. Okay. But my wife needed uh, blood transfusions and they, they sent out a call for, um, people to volunteer to give, give blood. Uh, and the, the, her room was, or the, the, where they were collecting the blood was, there was probably five people in there and they were all my fellow agents who yeah. stopped what they were doing immediately went, went to the hospital to, to do whatever they could, including, you know, donate their very blood. And that, you know, that, that kind of closeness doesn't, doesn't go away. Uh, it never, it was never repeated anywhere else in, in my FBI career or anywhere else. But, um, it was, uh, it was a good time. That's cool. You love to hear those stories too, right? I mean, that's awesome to anytime you have a group of people, you can rely on like that and you find them. I, I truly believe everybody's meant to find them in different spots of life. Mine have been through athletics, but I mean, it's just cool to, to hear, hear those stories of the camaraderie, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's kind of cheeky to say, oh, you're relying on these guys. Your life depends on it because, you know, run the SWAT team together, you're doing arrest. And that's true to some extent. Um, but, but really it's, it's like you say, it's this, this trust of this person, unless I, unless I really screw up <laughs> bad or I, or I, or I screw them somehow. Other than that, they're going to, they're going to stick with me. They're going to support me no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, th I think it was, I think it was vice versa. Yeah. That's interesting. That, thank you for sharing that. It's always, it's always cool to hear those, those kind of stories to me, I think, right. Camaraderie. Just uh, feel like we're in a spot in the world where there's not, you feel like there's not a lot of good people. So to hear, hear stories of good people is great, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'll consciously avoid talking about politics, but I, you know, I was just, I was, it struck me. I was just reading uh, some articles this morning about whistleblowers, FBI testifying in Congress and uh, taking, I'm, I'm not even sure the positions, but, but speaking out, I think one of them recorded his supervisor, surreptitiously recorded his supervisor. They, they went to the media. Um, that, that in, in, again, in this period of time, I'm talking about the nineties, early nineties, that was unthinkable, right. unthinkable. You, you just, it would it would be it'd be akin to suggesting let's just go conduct espionage for the Russians. I mean, nobody, regardless of of their of your your views, your your political views, or or if you didn't like you didn't like the priority of cases you were being assigned, you, you, you shut the hell up and you did it. You did your job objectively, unbiased, and and roll up your sleeves, keep your chin up, and and do your damn job. Yeah, um, I, I'm I'm. I'm I'm saddened by what I'm reading lately. Yeah, because it's because here's the other thing. I mean, the 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 FBI more than anything else is a brand, right? right? It's like yeah, Google is a brand, Mattel is a brand, the FBI itself, the the seal, the name, the acronym, it's a brand, and that brand has to be like any other 
company or, or a brand holder, it had there there's a reputation with it. People, you know, people buy people buy Toyotas because they know it's a reliable car and and they trust it. FBI, you knock on somebody's door or you call somebody up and say, would, would I, 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 can you help me out? I need to talk to you about this matter, this case. That, that You need that trust. You need that brand behind you because if, if that's gone and there's a loss and they think that, uh, I don't know, I, I don't even trust this guy because, you know, what I read on TV and I'm hearing their politics, this, I wonder what, I wonder what politics this guy believes. And right. so it's, it's, I, I think the damage and I know I said I wasn't going to go down this road politically, but but the damage is is it's going to take us a long time to to dig out for it. And I hope, um, you know, I, I hope that uh, other rational people see 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 the uh, uh, you know see what's really going on. And that's some of these documentaries too. I that's I know we'll get into that, but that's kind of been the the uh, overriding push and objective for. Uh, being willing to even get on and, and help and work on some of these some of these things is to the extent I can keep, <laughs> keep make people aware that there's more going on a lot of good work and, right. and maintain the brand somehow. Yeah, I appreciate that about you. And I know when we we spoke briefly on the phone a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to plan a date here and talk about doing this, that, that was something that we had discussed and not to steer it down that path still, but I, I completely agree. We have a lot of healing that needs to happen in America and there's a lot of craziness going on. And so I do appreciate the reason that you do these things and the, the documentaries to show you know, that there is good, you know, they're still good and not everybody's corrupt and out to get everybody else. Right. So I do really appreciate that about you. Um, I'm going to change gears a little bit because it, it's something that another significant time and you happen to be in the FBI and I know there's a little bit of talk in it, but the time around nine 11, I know you did some joint mm -hmm. terrorism stuff and that what, I mean, that day your life had to completely flip upside down. I couldn't imagine what that was like working in your shoes, right? I mean, just talk, I mean, tell me yeah. a little bit about that day and then kind of the months or maybe years that followed sure. in your role. I mean, it just, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, great, great, great question. Great topic to talk about. Um, my, my, it, my world changed that day, but nowhere near the way it changed for many, many other people. It, the change, I think the change for me was a little more, a little more gradual over, over, few weeks and months and I'll get into that as, as I was, <laughs> um, I had taken a, an opportunity to go teach some, teach a course, week long course in this tiny European country, uh, which we're hearing more and more about lately, but, but before, before the last year or so, most people had never heard of Moldova, right. um, <laughs> poor, poor Eastern European country. Uh, they make good wine and, and they have some other things going for them. But um, so I, I had to agree to come take a teach a course in Moldova, uh, go to the hotel, um, turn on the five o'clock news, five thirty news, CNN International, and holy shit, it's going on. The, the planes are hitting the towers, as we all remember. Everybody, people were watching this live, um, and well, literally up the whole night. Um, Next morning, we, we, I'm not even sure we, we tried to get through the course because I mean, the significance of it, uh, hadn't really hit. Um, we went over to the, I'll never, I, I have a picture of this somewhere. Um, went over to the, uh, the, the U S embassy, um, at some point the next day and you couldn't, you couldn't get into the embassy because of the number of flowers and candles that the, the Moldovan people poor as they might be found it in their hearts to to come to the embassy wow. and put and do that and it, it was moving um so i'll fast forward because i i think i think you want to hear this this part of the story um <laughs> so um there there was this order that had come out from from headquarters that everybody needed to get back to their to their field office right away um I'm in Moldova. 
no flights, nothing going on. Um, I somehow managed to, I, I, I this was, the, the 11th was like a Tuesday, I believe. By Friday, things were starting to open up. Caught a flight from Kishnau, uh, Moldova to Frankfurt and with the plan to jump on a, on a Delta flight that was supposed to go that day. We had gotten some inside inside scoop that Delta was going to fly one flight from Frankfurt that Friday back to the U.S., one of the first first transatlantic flights back. Um, but there was, so there was this order. Um, I had, when I got to Frankfurt, I called the, the FBI office there, um, not really knowing uh, what was going on in the background, but they were what they were dealing with. Um, and I said, hey, I'm, here's who I am. Um, I'm in country. Um, I I don't speak German, but I'll do what I can. Oh, and 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 the guy, the attaché was like, oh my God, yes, yes, we can. Any we need all the help we can get. Little did I know, the reason they needed all the help they could get was because the whole the Hamburg cell in Germany that Mohammed Atta was part of, it, it was starting to to be disclosed, and they were they were crazy shit busy with that. I mean, that was the the most uh, urgent thing going on, probably in the world on that on that day. Um, called called back to to Jacksonville. Hey, I, I think they need me here. I was told orders are orders. Get your ass on the plane and get back here. Um, to this day, I regret not uh, sort of intentionally or in it inadvertently missing that flight and, and having could have stayed and and been. I wouldn't say part of history, but contributed um, to there. But I, I got back on the plane, and um, that was that was kind of a little bit of a wake up call too, because of the the emotion that the um, the flight attendants and the crew um, were undergoing, because they were uh, any again anybody who remembers that week, um, people were terrified. They didn't sure. know what was going to go on? We're going to have another another hijacking on the plane. Is it going to blow up? on and on and on um got on the plane um of course i was seated somewhere back in coach um was not armed because we just you just didn't fly armed at that time overseas on commercial flight um but i told told the flight attendants who i was and hey i said i'm not armed but i'm here i'm here to help if you need me and she just she just broke down crying with this relief yeah um Captain came out and um, I got to sit in seat 1A <laughs> in, in business class Very all the cool. way back to what was at the time flew into Cincinnati. And, and then uh, uh, just then, then, then the shit got real because um, you got to get to Cincinnati and people are sleeping everywhere. Airports full. You can't get in a hotel. You can't get rental cars. And um, somehow I, I managed to link up with, you'd see Delta crew and, link up, link up, get some insight on when a flight's going and somehow made it back to Jacksonville that Saturday. Um, and, and immediately wanted to try to go to work. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Um, so, but, but to, in terms of like the change, you know, it was over the course of the next few weeks, the, the, the magnitude of what we were up against combined with, I think at least, at least in our office, the lack of, of real understanding um, of Islamic extremism and terrorism. I mean, people couldn't even get the name straight. I mean, it was um, it was a, a really steep learning curve for a lot of people. Yeah, it, I can only imagine. And I'm also under the assumption that it was like a all-hands-on-deck situation, like – Everything else that anybody was working on was probably pushed to the back burner at that time, right? And oh. you, you mean you have probably people, I mean, obviously, people that have done nothing with terrorism or violent crimes that are working white collar crimes, all that stuff. And now, I mean, I can only imagine the learning curves that probably took place during that couple months, right? Trying to figure all this out and what was going on. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. I used to call it, and I, I kind of joke about it, but. I called it the suspicious Arab neighbor program. And what, what, what that really meant was, um, particularly in, in probably some of the more rural places, um, 
somebody might call in and say, hey, you know, my neighbor, he's a, he's a, he's, he's one of them, you know, he, he, and he hadn't come out of his house in three or four days. And I think he's a terrorist and that gets called in. Um, hundreds and thousands of these, these one-off leads on of come in like that. And, and then somebody goes out, knocks on the door and finds out that this person is a, uh, a, a Hindu from India, a cardiologist and right. is, is terrified, is terrified of his neighbor anyway. And now, <laughs> and now he's being uh, erroneously tagged as uh, as Al as an Al Qaeda operative. But I mean, there was there was really some some off the wall funny shit that came in. Uh, the I, we, the Bin Laden sightings, you know. I think there was one a, a guy at Orange Julius at Orange Park Mall. Uh, when employees looked like him, and that was probably him. And you know, that, that's what somebody said. And you know, said, well, you got to run, got to run it down, but. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty ingenious. Bin Laden, after pulling this off, has relocated to to Jacksonville, Florida. Got himself a job at Orange Julius and is hiding <laughs> out, making shakes so no one will hide in plain sight. Yeah, um, it's so, a lot of that. So I mean, literally every call. I, first off, I appreciated your Jacksonville, Jay. Uh, your Jacksonville accent you threw on there. Uh, your <laughs> South Florida, I lo- love that. But. Um, so literally people in that me, people are calling me some people call me some pretty bad names after that. I'm oh sure. yeah. No, not from this podcast. Trust me. But, um, it like it literally every call that came in, like you had to, you had to just vet out no matter how obscene or absurd that it, it truly, I mean, obviously nobody at the FBI really believed that bin Laden was working at orange Julius, yeah. but you guys probably had to go check on it no matter what. I'm sure. I mean, you just fully vet, everything that comes in, obviously there's a priority list. How long did it take to kind of get back to normal inside your, your world or your spot of the FBI there after nine 11? Yeah. You know, I, nobody, I don't think anybody ever got back to to normal because immediately or within, within a pretty short period of time, everybody, um, whether they, they wanted to or not was, was, potentially reassigned to to work on these on terrorist cases i mean we we formed a whole nother squad sure uh within within a couple of weeks and people and, and a lot of people volunteered to to step up and and be willing to they recognized they recognized uh, the need they'd step up and hey i'll be part of that squad and even i i had uh, i had supervised a couple of the smaller offices at the time and they might they might have three or four people working really everything, so their workload just immediately would would kind of shift over into handling some of the terrorism leads that that came in. Right, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think it's a time in history that every American alive will always remember. Right, I happen not to. To make you feel old or anything, I've been being the fourth grade, and I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'll never forget it. I remember I was I went to a small Catholic school in my hometown, and the fifth grade teacher they had a sub, and she came in. And she said something about some airplanes, and obviously going to a Catholic school, like they didn't really shield us from that stuff. You know, it was just kind of on, and then we'd pray about it, whatever, but not really understanding. And then I remember going home that evening, and we lived not too far from a gas station, and I grew up in in rural America and all of the gas stations, you know, were packed to the brim, you know, just full of, of people you waiting to get gas. As we fight through this, some technical difficulties here. Sorry if the episode sounds chopped up. Um, just wanted to kind of touch on, on the two big cases, I guess for me, where I kind of came to know who Chris Graham was <laughs> and, and, and watch those, if you could, I guess, um, the Mac Millions case, that was the first one I watched. And, and for those who don't know the backstory, I guess, you know, basically the mob or somebody connected was stealing the big prize winners for the McDonald's Monopoly games, right? Which is sounds so crazy to even put that out there, that that's something that people could fix or rig, but they sure did it. I guess... For you, how did that come across your desk, and what was that scope like? I mean, it just kind of seems like, you know, one of those things where it's like, but, I mean, people are stealing money, right? So it's obviously a crime that needs to be investigated. And if you haven't watched the 
the documentaries that this one and the one we're going to talk about, please go do. But what was that? What was that case like for you? And maybe like a timeline is, I mean, how long it ran and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because it does kind of tie into the nine 11, uh, part. So, uh, spring ish of 2001, um, one of the agents, a guy named Doug Matthews, who's the, 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 the star, everybody loves him in the McMillions program. Cause he was, he was un, unhinged, I guess is the way to describe him. And, and he's, and that's how he is. Um, just a great, great agent, great guy walks in and with this, this tip that the McDonald's monopoly games are fixed by, uh, by somebody named uncle Jerry that had come in from an informant. Um, and we didn't, we didn't, obviously we didn't know until much later the scope and how, how deep involved it was, but, um, and, and describe it this way. If, if it's true and we ignore it, if it's, if it's true and, and we, and when we act on it, um, we see the end result. Holy crap. This is, this is one of the most significant white collar crime cases, at least at that time. Um, to, to maybe, maybe, maybe remote, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is uh, far fetched. Maybe it's just one, one piece was, was stolen. Who knows? But it's, it's just, you got, you had to run it down. Um, right. Because again, if it, if it, if you ignored it, then, then we'd be, somebody would find it later. We'd be embarrassed. Um, so yeah, so we started really, and, and, and the, the McMillions program, the guys who put it together, they, I think they really did a good job of, of, of explaining the, the level of, of preliminary background, hard work that went into trying to prove, trying to, um, establish that this was true. The looking at the phone records, um, looking at where people live addresses tying it all together and what what ultimately became this huge almost like spider chart of how how all these people were connected um and then leading into um again i'll i'll, I'll, I'll kind of hit the bullet points because I've, I've done it done it in my sleep yeah. um we end up we end up having to go to mcdonald's that begin because we 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 necessarily needed them we didn't know um how maybe they were involved or how are they going to react? Um, we had figured out that m most of the, uh, that the promotions were being handled by, uh, by a company named Simon marketing in Atlanta. And they were handled by a guy named Jerry Jacobson. So we were relatively confident that, that McDonald's had been, was was, was a victim and nothing more. Um, but we had to go to them and, um, ask them to continue running the games. Um, even after we had told them we have all this information that they're corrupted. And um, I thought it would be an easy decision for them to keep running the games. The reason I asked to keep running the games is we need to catch these folks in the act. We can't, you can't just rely on phone records and what people say, right. um, maybe trace the money. You could, but it'd be monumental. We needed them to run run the game to catch these people in the act doing this again. Um, so we we pitched the idea to McDonald's, and they took a few days to think about it. But uh, thankfully, uh, and and credit to them, they they decided to keep running the game, another version of the game over the summer of of two thousand one, during which time we had wiretaps on many of the the main players, including Jacobson and. And some of his his middlemen, his recruiters, as I would say, and then that led into an undercover operation, which uh, got a lot of laughs. That was kind of the 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 reunion of winners, where we went out and uh, went out to past winners and asked them to recant or re recall how they won on video, because we we're going to have a big reunion in Vegas, and and that was that was a lot of fun. We locked some of them in, but so the takedown, the big takedown. Uh, which was the national news story was August 21st of 2001 and was, was all the news for a few days. Case was still going. Uh, we had indicted initially, I think eight, but there was subsequent indictments of another 20 and another 20 after that. But 9-11 happened and all this, uh, 
this excitement and, and attention to the McDonald's case really got put on the back burner. It was not the bright, shiny object anymore, although um, the, the case agents, Doug's, the Doug Matthews, Doug Estraliga, and Rick Dent had to keep working on it in addition to all the other things that were going on in the, in the terrorism world. And right. uh, so, yeah, so that was the, uh, and then lo and behold, 17 some odd years later, I got a call from some young producers who were looking to try to do a story on it. And um, three years later, it was uh, on HBO an Emmy nominated docu-series that uh, uh, fortunately kind of came out during the pandemic. So um everybody was watching it every Sunday night and yeah, um, it was, it was kind of kept people, kept people engaged. Yeah. It just, so. it's just one of those things where everybody knows about the McDonald's monopoly game. Right. And it, it's just like, I mean, it's a good watch and, and it's kind of like how, how could somebody even think, but it's, you know, greed gets the best of most people and it's just a, absolutely insane thing and then to to hear their stories and i did love the part where you guys really set them up where it's like oh tell us about how you won like it's just so funny and i've seen other things like that you know like other busts in similar situations where people are so excited to go and tell this fake story where it's like well we got you you know so Mm -hmm. i think the creativity sometimes of what you guys do is 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 awesome and it's also you know hilarious and it probably makes the job that much more fun where you know you kind of have these guys and or gals and it's like well we get to play with them a little bit you know so I just think that's just so interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I mean just just sitting around trying to kind of dream up how you know how this undercover thing is going to work. Um, I think it's in the it's in the well. There's great footage, obviously. I mean, it sounds like I'm pitching pitching HBO here, but there, there, there's, there's original footage from, from some of these interviews yeah. that, that we did and some of the surveillance and, and whatnot that we managed to pull together. But, um, but, but literally sitting around trying to, trying to game out, Hey, how is this reunion going to work? And I think, I think Doug, when he, Doug Matthews, when he initially uh, kind of came up with the idea, he really thought we were actually going to bring everybody to Vegas and, and have a reunion and then arrest them at the, uh, at the place and the cooler heads prevail. And so we we can promise it. We're never going to, we're yeah. never going to do it. So Doug never got his Vegas trip is what you're saying. Never, huh? Yeah. I think we gave him one a few years later. <laughs> but, uh, That's great. Well, and then the other one, which was when I realized I was like, I saw you pop on this documentary and I was like, he looks so familiar. And like I told you when we spoke before, that was when I was like, I got to find out what else he was in. And then it just kind of clicked together. And so, uh, but the, the most recent one, I think that it's what the grand night talk, correct? Is that the right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. On Hulu. Yeah. The George Stephanopoulos production. Yeah. And that was really well done. Um, uh, it kind of, I think the, the craziest thing to me is that something like the Klan is still prominent in America. I think it is, is wild. Right. Um, it, and you've probably talked on this one a ton too, and I know it just came out, but um, you know that's that's kind of the opposite end of, of the McDonald's. Yeah. I mean, this is an extremely serious situation, and I mean, what was what was kind of all that like, and, and especially getting to the end where you essentially had to stage a death to to get yeah. these guys to back off. I mean. You know, we can laugh and, and joke about the Mac Millions, and then you come to this one, it's like, holy smokes, this is opposite ends of the spectrum here. It, it absolutely is. I mean, there's there's definitely nothing uh, nothing humorous or lighthearted at all in in that case and, and, and in the Grand Nighthawk on the way they did it. I, and I agree. I think they did. They really did a, a good job um, telling the whole story in, I think it's only about an hour and change. So yeah. they didn't have this six, seven uh, part documentary to, to tell, uh, quite a story. Um, but, um, um, yeah, it, it, it going back to your, to your original point in terms your question about, you know, the KKK and, um, I mean this there's, it's rural Florida. Um, yeah. and, uh, there, there's, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I mean, if you, you drive around, parts of rural Florida, you will see 
you'll see Confederate flags, you'll see the the bumper stickers, and 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 it, it's there. I mean, there's a, uh, a almost a tangible feel to it in certain parts. Um, remember too that in in Grand Nighthawk, the the KKK members um, were also correctional officers, uh, one current and two former. Um, in in I mean, I've been to I've been to those those state prisons, and they are. It's not a place I'd ever want to work. Um, right. These guys don't get paid much. They're dealing with with inmates from areas very different than where they're from. Um, and then, I mean, as evidenced in the in the show, there's there's some racism that 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 is inherent, uh, at least at least in the guys who who you know com- conspired hired our informant, uh, foreman Joe Moore to kill, um, a black inmate and Warren Williams, uh, over, over a fight that had happened 18 months earlier. Yeah. Um, and then again, if you watch the, uh, the piece, the tapes are pretty chilling. Um, the, the, just the, the, the callousness in which these guys talked about killing killing him and how they were going to do it. Um, they were, at one point they were going to inject him with insulin and have him OD. And they think they talk about, Oh, he'll, he'll just be flopping around by the river. Um, really, really pretty, pretty, pretty disturbing. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't, I, I think it, I think it was a really well done piece. Um, you know, I, I, um, yeah, I, I I'm, I haven't I haven't heard much feedback on it though to tell you the truth and I, I don't know if it's um, you know I, I know it's being watched but it, it, it's not it, it's not getting I'm glad I'm glad you liked it and the people who've watched it like it um, I, I think like I said I think I think it's a good tight story they they don't stray off into other other conspiracy theories or, or right. that, that all law enforcement in Florida is KKK they they never really they never really went down those roads, which, which I think is a credit to their, you know, to their journalism. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know when we spoke, that was something that we kind of talked about. And I think if you look hard, you'll find real, I mean, I'll just call them for what they are, piece of shit people in anything. Right. So, I mean, you'll find, <laughs> you'll find bad doctors, whatever. I mean, there's, there's terrible people. I thought probably the most compelling thing about the whole thing was Joe Moore, the informant himself, um, how he was former military and, was honorably discharged and and then really found this as a way to continue to give back and serve his country. And ultimately, you know, it, it did save a life. Like if, if they weren't dealing with the informant, Joe Moore, there's no question that that, that man would have been dead, right? Like they, if they didn't turn, thank God that they didn't, if they turned to anybody else other than the, the FBI informant, (laughs) then he would have been truthfully dead. And so I think it was just kind of like a, you know, holy shit. Like it just, it was just a, it was a crazy situation and story. And I couldn't, and I'm sure there's more of those that have came across your desk and those kinds of things, especially being in Florida. But I think it's just such a a wild thing to see how prevalent some of those groups still are and how hatred feel, which you just think it's like, you know, how do you get rid of it? How do you get it to go away? And unfortunately, ignorance is probably going to be here forever. But I just think it it did really show a good light on on you guys and you know him and and the work that mm-hmm. he does. Because I think you know when I was watching until the end, I really I thought Joe Moore worked for the FBI, but he was he was just an informant, right? I mean he he took that on and he lived his regular life outside of that and. I mean, hats yeah. off to that guy. It's just a crazy, crazy thing to me. So, yeah, no, no kidding. I mean, this is um, you. You can tell this was it was a dangerous endeavor for him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he. I mean, I can't imagine the stress that, that he was going through. He, he did, and I, I think I said this in the show. He did a really good job of of of, of pulling them along without, you know, without entrapping them or anything like that he did a good job of getting them to say things that were necessary on the tapes um really did a good job and and not like you say 
not doing it, not doing it for the money. I don't, the money was expenses later on. So it wasn't, you know, wasn't, wasn't doing it to get rich by, by no means. Um, and yeah, I mean, I doing it for all the right reasons. And by the way, he really, um, they didn't get into this so much in the, uh, in the, in the show, but he, he was on the stand testifying for not only, not only testifying, he went through depositions before testifying with their, their defense attorneys or these guys, they, they, no holds barred. I mean, they were going after him for every, every goddamn little thing he had. He had some, he had some mental health challenges early on in his life. Um, and they, 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 they were ruthless with that. Right. And he withstood, withstood that questioning on the stand. And at the end of the day too, remember, you got to remember this, that these guys were convicted in Alachua County. They were convicted by a jury of, of their peers, not, not convicted by a New York jury or a Berkeley, California jury. <laughs> right. So again, maybe, you know, credit hats off to to the citizens of Alachua County and the jury that whatever they, they, they looked at the facts and they made, they made the call and convicted these guys and they're, they're in jail. The very, they were in the very jails that they once worked at. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it kind of comes full circle for them. Right. Um, but I think, you know, and, and in at the end of that one, Joe Moore kind of talks about the clan had tracked him down after he went in the witness protection program and, people were kind of coming after him and that's kind of how the documentary came to light. He kind of wanted people to know, like, you know, if something happened to him that what, what was actually going on. Right. Does that stuff ever, I mean, as somebody, I mean, obviously you're out now, right? Like you're, you're, you're retired from that, that life. Is that something that ever lingers in your head? Do you ever find yourself, you know, looking over your shoulder in certain situations because of, your former line of work or, or are you pretty at peace with, 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 with what you've done and, and, and you're, you're living happy and, and clear minded. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I think the latter, I don't, I don't really have, um, I'm sure there's people along the way that I put in jail that felt that they, we, they probably wish they never got caught. Right. Um, I, I can't think of, uh, uh, you know, always try to treat, no matter what they did, you treat them with some respect and, and some degree of humanity. Yeah. Never, never, never shit on somebody. Um, no matter how bad, you know, how bad they've done. Um, and, and maybe that goes a long way somewhere down the road. Um, but, but yeah, no, I mean, in terms of like being alert, I'm, I'm alert, not because of some some white collar crime guy from 20 years ago is going to try to come you know get us out of jail is going to come try to find me but i'm more alert just because of what's going on like everybody else in this world when i i go to the church or the theater or something like that i mean that's uh that's seems unfortunately a bigger risk for for all of us than um some some former defendant yeah coming coming yeah. around no, absolutely. Yeah, I, that was just really the one the one question that I really had, you know, cuz it's a it's not a normal line of work, right? And and I think you kind of said it best. It's not like you weren't the FBI isn't in the business of putting the wrong people away, right? Like there's a lot of a lot of work and intel and all that, you know, like detective, you know, investigating all that goes into making sure that you have the right people and you have all the facts that line up to make sure that it's 100% cut dry. This is the guy. I don't think the FBI is in the business of like, well, we're pretty sure it's him, you know? So, right. Uh, yeah. Well, and any, anything you do. Um, and, and this is maybe, maybe a little bit of a change from when, you know, when I, when I came in, um, when I came in, almost everybody had to, had a case that went to trial or, or went pretty close to it. Um, when you're, when your work is, is now on display in trial and you have often very competent defense attorneys picking it apart. Yeah. Um, you learn pretty quickly that, um, any idea that, well, we're just gonna, we're just gonna convict this guy because we we're pretty sure he did it. That ain't gonna cut it. You, you've, you damn sure better have a, a, a rock solid case and even look at 
hey, these are the weaknesses and right. and and deal with them. Um, I think as things well, and, and again, it's it's kind of a nine eleven change. I mean, pre nine eleven, criminal cases were our bread and butter. I mean, we're constantly you were in court every couple of weeks, probably. Yeah, not so much now, and, and I think it's unfortunate for you know for some of the some of the up and coming younger agents not to you know not to get that 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 kind of experience that to your point you make sure that if you are investigating somebody and fine and indicting them filing charges that they are um they are guilty of what you're accusing them of yeah. and most of the time they know it <laughs> i mean it comes down to they're going to negotiate to try to get the best deal or try to get off on a technicality sure absolutely well, as we get to winding down, first off, I want to say I'm so thankful for you spending an hour of your life with me. I greatly appreciate that. Um, what what advice, I mean, you made a massive change, right, early in your life. And when I kind of started this podcast, it was uh, kind of about giving people some purpose or or giving them, you know, a, a opportunity to hear somebody's story to help them take a leap. What advice would you give to somebody who is kind of stuck in that, that accounting job that they don't love, you know, not every day is the bandit going to run through the office, but to give them a clear cut sign is something to chase. But what advice would you give to somebody to make a change? Sure. I I, I think the guy who said this, I think it's, uh, I'm I'm picturing the, 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 the the quote, and I think it's George Elliott, but it's the, the quote is it's never too late to be what you would have been. In other words. uh, So Keep that in mind. But I would say that uh, every time I've made a change or stepped into things that were on the surface, they looked like they were going to be challenging, or they're going to there's some hardship involved. You're, you're going to move here. You're going to go go and work here. Um, and and there was. I mean, sometimes it was you know, pain in the ass, and you you wished, uh, man, why did I why did I sign up for this this assignment or or make this decision, but every single one of them was, was necessary. And in hindsight was, was added something to, to, to who I am and and my history and my experiences. And I, I think I can look back even on, on some of the bad things or, or the, the things that were, that were challenging and difficult and not all fun at the time were important and, and contributory to the, my life so far. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I go, you know, anybody who just don't be afraid to, um, to take steps that financially may not be as lucrative. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe they, they stress your, your relations with your family or, or, or they put you in an uncomfortable position. You geographically not where you want to be, things like that. I, 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 I just would would call with especially young people. Um, look, don't don't dismiss those opportunities outright. Be be forward leaning. Get out over your skis on, on taking on some of that stuff because, um, and again, there's a cliche. It goes by fast. I mean, and and as bad as as bad as uh, um, you know, as bad as a decision might be, and how tough it is, it, it always it can always be rectified. Um, you know, there's only there's only a couple decisions you make in life that are you can't fix, and we know what they are. But yeah, um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. I hope that I hope that's helpful. No, I appreciate that. out there, I, I appreciate that. That's uh, that's true, real advice, and and you've made some big moves, obviously across your way, and you touched on early. You know, people you met in San Antonio, some of the best people you ever met in your life, and if you would have never made that switch, right? So I couldn't agree yeah. more, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. Um, if you could plug the website for me and for the listeners so they can read the story, I know that people will, and it is, it goes into a little more detail in it and it's all from your perspective. And that's what I enjoyed reading that. So if you would just plug that for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, if, <laughs> and I'll tell you why I put it together. So, um, if, if you know, this will only take a minute. So after, after McMillions came out, um, there was, I, I ended up from various, um, uh, events and things with a whole stack of cards from producers and people in the movie business um, offering, Hey, if you got any, 
you know, got any good stories, let me know, or can I call you if we need help with something? And that got me thinking, well, maybe, you know, because I, I did do a, a lot of the background work with McMillions beyond what sure. was what was on the screen in terms of, I mean, I worked with with James Hernandez and Brian Lazarte off and on over a couple of years, getting it, getting it put together, finding the right people, getting the right documents, whatever. Um, but it, it clicked that, Hey, maybe, maybe I need to, to get out in front of this thing. So I put together this website, uh, uh, just being real basic G man, G as the capital G M M M A N resources.com. Uh, and, one of the one of the tabs in there is what what uh, what Bennett was referring to, which was uh, my story and uh, something real easy to write during the pandemic when you you had a lot of time on your hands and you sit in a computer and type away. But uh, um, but but yeah, if, if anybody anybody has some some downtime and gets bored with everything else going on in life and wants to take a look at it and read at read it, I'm happy to happy to. Uh, Happy to, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate I appreciate you taking time to be with me today. Uh, it's it super fun. Uh, I'm glad we were able to meet and connect. Um, yeah, I, I hope everybody does check it out because it is it is a good read. Um, thank you all to everybody listening at home. Thanks again, Chris, for being on. Um, everybody listening, please like, comment, share, subscribe, unsubscribe, rate five stars, all that fun stuff. Be good, everybody. Got some green away water.